Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Women in this country are the most highly educated women in the world. And we're 51% of this population. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sullick. Good women, great chat. Sam Mostyn has enjoyed a diverse career across business, politics, science and the arts, international development, the not-for-profit sector, Indigenous reconciliation and sport. She serves as a non-executive director on a number of boards, for example, the Swans, so many others, but is also president of CEW, Chief Executive Women. Sam Mostyn, it's great to finally have you at Short Black. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for asking me, Sandra. As the President of Chief Executive Women, what's the snapshot of Australia right now in terms of women representation? We've come a long way. We should celebrate the fact that um, organisations like the 30% Club have done a marvellous job in ensuring that um, most of the ASX 200 now has about 30% representation of women on, on their boards. There are still a couple of recalcitrant boards that have no women and, and shareholders look at that and I think that will repair itself by virtue of the action of those investors. So we're doing better. I think we've got to really focus on how we keep women in senior management and women appointed as chief executives. We were doing quite well before COVID. A number of women were being appointed and showing that women can lead organisations very, very adeptly and bring, and bring different skills, but very good skills. And during COVID, we saw a complete reversion of appointments. So during COVID, almost every chief executive appointment went to a man. Why do you think that was? Boards and chairs at the time said at this time we're going back to what we feel comfortable with. We don't want to take any risks. And so women were ultimately hurt by that, I think, in terms of chief executive roles. We're very keen at CEW. We're an organisation of enabling women leaders to, to really fill out their full leadership capacity and to bring other women leaders along. So we would say there's a lot of work to be done there. There are still in this country huge structural barriers to the participation and progress of women into senior roles. And they go to very simple things that most women listening to this will know about. And one of them is the things we do over the course of our life that take us out of the workforce. Having children, superannuation, not being paid on paid parental leave, but being absent from workplaces for long periods of time, the huge cost and availability of childcare when a woman wants to come back into work. All of those burdens have typically in this country fallen on women. And what we've been advocating for both from a policy point of view on paid parental leave superannuation on paid parental leave, accessible and affordable childcare with good subsidies, is that if you remove those barriers, more women can participate in the economy and stay in the work. But importantly, more and more men might take that caring responsibility and not think of it just as the woman's role as a mother. And it's not always about children. Sometimes it's about care for older people or care for people in the community. And we've had a, we've had a kind of cultural norm that that's women's work. And so we're trying very much with our, our discussions with government and across the business world to say, don't assume that caring is all about women. And if we can remove the big bulky barriers to women's participation and progress, it's fantastic for the economy. So we're number one on the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Assessment of Education of Women. We're number one. We've held that position for a very long time. 
We used to sit at about number eighth in the world on women's economic participation back in 2006. This year, in 2021, we're in the 70s. Wow. We're 70th in the world with women's economic participation and we're in the 80s for women's political engagement. So our parliaments and our governments at all levels don't have enough women's representation compared to the world and our engagement in the economy has plummeted. That's just a bad decision about how you create incredible vibrancy in an economy when you're wasting your most educated resource. We spoke to Kate Jenkins a while ago and she said something to me It's always stuck with me and that was when Australia led the world with parental leave, it engendered women's stereotypes and that's the unintended consequence of that decision. There are many unintended consequences of those kind of policies. The one we're living through right now, which we've just released a report on, is the double-edged sword of flexible working. So everyone got to enjoy flexible working through COVID, but if we're not careful about that and equitable about how flexibility is embedded inside organisations, it's likely that women who seek to continue to act and work flexibly will be seen to be not in the eyes of those that promote and appoint into higher roles or not ambitious because they're working flexibly. And if we're not purposeful about an equitable, flexible economy, that's where you get the unintended consequence. So the more we can have companies purposefully designing systems that say we want to be flexible and we want men, very senior men, to use that flexibility. What does that look like then? What does that answer or that solution look like? Getting more men to put their hand up? And the more senior the man and the the more senior the man who's progressing well despite taking flexibility It sends a message to younger men and more junior men that actually taking some time out to be a carer or structuring my week so I have a day at home with the kids or I start every second day at 10 o'clock instead of 8, whatever the form of flexibility that the company or organisation designs and backs in being taken by men sends a very clear message that flexibility is not about women, women's work and women's care obligations. It's actually about how a contemporary society needs to operate and that most families need to operate in a flexible way And we've got to build confidence in men and we've got to let women know that then when they take flexible arrangements, that's not the signal that they're not ambitious or don't want to progress. Because women fall off this cliff by about middle management and think, there's no point me trying because no one's noticed the work I'm doing. They just think of me as a a return from parental leave worker. She doesn't get to get increased salary. She doesn't keep earning superannuation. She ends up having to patch work jobs that are not utilising what she might have trained in. And suddenly she's one of that cohort of women who by the time she's in her 70s is our fastest growing poor and homeless cohort. It's the new face of Australian homelessness. That's right. Older women. Older women. And so, so we've got to deal with the fact that we've got a problem for women over 50 in this country. So what do you do to stop that happening ever again? Come back and think about purposeful, equitable, flexible arrangements, the barriers to women's full participation, investing in this great asset we have of the highly educated women of our community. But also we need some solution for those women who are in that position now because of the disadvantages they've faced over the course of their career. Innately, it's often difficult for women to take those risks and put themselves forward. You've been quoted as saying that, you know, we've learned over time girls are taught to play safe. Boys and men are taught from a very early age to take risks. How do you switch that when it's almost biological? I'm not sure it is biological, but I think we think about it that way in gender stereotypes when we raise our children and things that happen in school. So I think we just have to be, I think so many of these things require purpose and a a sense of determination. And we've got to stop assuming gendered roles at a very early age. Stop thinking that girls are not interested in maths and the sciences and have this chronic problem of women not participating in the tech sector and taking advantage of of all those, the, the great jobs that sit there 
We're all a product of our journey, aren't we? And all this unconscious bias, you know, sort of shapes most of our thinking. And the bit I really I struggle with, Sandra, is so many people look at this and think this is an argument of political correctness or identity politics. It makes me really sad to hear it, you know, the political class talking that way. What we're talking about is actually reflecting the communities that we all are part of and giving everyone the best chance to do the things they want to do, not be wasted in either their profession or their community, not make an assumption about men's roles, women's roles, not make an assumption about sexual and gender identification of anyone. Be inclusive, be purposeful about it, know why you're doing it. But this is not an act of political correctness. This is, this is for me, this is about respect. It's about getting the best out of every human being. And there's been so much disadvantage and discrimination in the past and setting paths for whether it's women or people of different backgrounds with low expectations and not taking advantage of this, this richness of people's ambition. And that's what I think we've got to really, for a country that's had to close its borders, can't rely on immigration, doesn't have a high population growth, if we don't respect the population we have now and utilise it in a way that says your path and your journey is one we can, we can work with and manage flexibly and dynamically, we're wasting one of the greatest assets this country has. A number of people I talk to critically on the back of COVID talk about the closed borders has now resulted in us having a massive skills shortage. So there may be an opportunity for women right now. There is. There's an opportunity for a lot of people right now if leaders, both political, business and community leaders, grab hold of this and do think about this post-COVID world as a reset. And I think that includes thinking about how we're going to respond to climate change and the, the revolution in our energy systems and the jobs that will come in the post-coal world. And so many communities need to, to build confidence that there is that world that they can be part of and their kids can be part of. And without an open border, you've got to believe that every person in the country matters and that giving people pathways for those new opportunities is a priority investing in sectors where we can lead the world and ensuring, and we're seeing it with lots of companies bringing offshore call centres back onshore. We've got the greatest opportunity for employment in our care sectors. If we were to seriously put care at the centre of our economy and think about good wages, good workforces around aged care, disability care, young care, early childhood care and education, they're incredibly great careers and, and they strengthen us as a country. But that would require a shift in saying we're not just all about the physical infrastructure, we're also about social infrastructure. And if we're going to build the scaffolding around this community and honour the extent of unpaid care that goes on by making it professional, having big workforce plans, and I think we'd see a boom in not just women's work, women working, but people who choose to be in the caring professions, great careers, and we could lead the world on this. You are not only a champion of women, I think you're a champion of all people and some of that, I mean, you're passionate about environmental sustainability and Australia's First Nations, Australia's First People. And I look back through your career and realise, I mean, you were in your 30s, I think, when you were elevated to working for Paul Keating. I mean, you've worked for Justice Michael Kirby. Talk me through how powerful that's been in your journey to have worked with people like that and what did you learn from those two in particular? Hugely lucky and hugely powerful in my career. I can't imagine where I, as an adult, I would have started to form a view about social justice and the role we all play in that if I hadn't spent a year working for Michael Kirby when he was president of the Court of Appeal. And then to have the opportunity to see a leader of our country who put policy and the ambition for the country centre to everything, to see that play out and see what it takes to have that ambition. Those two men have been hugely influential in my life. I'd have to say my family's been hugely influential. You know, to grow up in a family, in an army family, and to watch my father 
a deep belief in service. So his was service to Queen and Country as an army officer. And we were raised to believe that we had a role to play in a community, that you're always looking to, to be a, um, a servant of a community and to, to work alongside others. So we were, that was modelled very much. And my mother having to give up her career life to be a, an army wife and to raise us and do that selflessly. And, you know, th- those things were formative for me to be in a family where being part of a community and of service was important and not to waste any advantage and to sit back and rest on our laurels. But to work, Michael was all about justice and love. And I think he's become more comfortable in that language of love in recent years to talk about this, you know, what does it mean to be a human and to be in the business of making sure that people are treated respectfully and, and that as, as humans we actually um, we do love each other and care for each other and we, our legal systems and our processes respect that. And odd for a judge to be talking about love. So you know, it, was, it was a wonderful experience to work for Michael. For Paul, I, I still think his ambition for our country was much misunderstood and probably too many levels of it when he went to that last election and lost. But he had an ambition for us to be part of this region. He really wanted us to connect with the Asia-Pacific and be proud of that. So the, that was as much connected to becoming a republic, to cut those ties with a part of the world that's so far away and whose norms and behaviours weren't as relevant to us as the region. So those two things made perfect sense to me about a contemporary growing up society. And of course, at the centre of it for him and what it's become for me is what he articulated in the Redfern speech. And it was a settled, respectful understanding of First Nations and putting that in our constitution. I encourage everyone to go and read the Redfern speech. And it was crafted by Paul Keating and Don Watson, who's since passed. It was a profound moment in time. There's a moment in time to grab now. And I think it's marvellous and just so wonderful that the Sydney Peace Foundation has just announced that the Sydney Peace Prize this year will go to Megan Davis, Pat Anderson and Noel Pearson on behalf of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So in addition to reading the Redfern speech, I would then go and read the Uluru Statement, read it, not just think you know it, engage in the reading of it. It's now been translated into 60 languages by the SBS so that every community can read it in their own language. That statement is an invitation to every Australian. It wasn't written for government or for politicians. It was written for us. And when you read it through that lens and see what it's offering us to stand alongside Aboriginal and First Nations people to fix this horrible miss in our constitution, no recognition at all of First Nations in our foundation document, and provide a voice to the parliament, and then the reckoning that comes with that afterwards. But don't take the easy route and just legislate and let it become the the stuff of politics. Say something as a nation, just as we did in 1967. Over 90% of the population, in a spirit of um, an optimistic view of the country and its relationship with First Nations peoples, we did it once before. I think we're ready to go again. But if, you know, Pat Anderson says often, and she's an extraordinary Indigenous elder and leader, she says it all the time, if we miss this moment, it's another generation or so before we have that right again. This is the moment, as non-Indigenous Australians alongside every other Australian, to say we care enough about this. We don't just walk across bridges. We don't just wear the the flag or do welcomes and acknowledgements of country. We are now going to invest in the creative act of fixing our constitution, which is built for constant renewal. So this would just be another one. And the other book I would read is, um, or words I'd read, is that Professor Megan Davis has just released a book with Professor George Williams on everything you need to know about the Uluru Statement. It's a marvellous book. It's very simple, but it tells anyone who's coming to this new Here's what this is about. Here's how, what you can do. You know, get together as communities and let's fix this. I spent a lot of time in New Zealand and they're often held up as an example of how we could do better. But I get the sense a lot of Australians feel that National Sorry Day was enough. Many might. 
But I think that's, again, I thought it was interesting that Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales Premier, came out and said she thinks that the centre to reconciliation is the act of constitutional recognition. And she said it in a way that was unreserved, it was unqualified, it was a leader saying to her state, we're ready, and I think the community wants to go there. If we had more leaders, corporate and political leaders, saying, we're ready, let's do this. I mean, the Australian population showed through COVID that we're not as rebellious and we're not as larrikin as we like to think. We actually follow rules and we follow leaders. And so if we had a successful group of leaders say, it's time and we get this totally bipartisan view, that this isn't about party politics, this is about being excited about the future of the country by fixing this terrible, this terrible thing that sits as a sore, I think, and it festers. And so the Uluru Statement asks us simply to say recognition in our constitution is a starting point for all the things we can do. It, it helps so much more with the closing the gap kind of rhetoric. It's much more optimistic. It's far more profound. And it's honest. You have a seat at the table, you deserve it, and we welcome you. And it's good for everyone. This is not just, and this is why the way the, the Uluru Statement is worded, it's an act of generosity, an act of love to us to say, we've worked very hard to show you why we matter and what we've done in this country and what you didn't know as you grew up if you were not Indigenous through the way we, history used to be taught. Here's what really happened. Our Indigenous Australians, not, not our, that's wrong, Indigenous Australians who have been put through such through frontier wars, through stolen children, through stolen wages, you know, the litany of things that have happened in this country. You would think there'd be anger being thrown at us. But as Pat and Megan and Noel have said, st- this is a, group, a community of First Nations peoples with an act of generosity and love. And so, you know, there's not anger in that. There is a sense of, of a moment for us to grab. If we miss that, I don't know what that says about us on the other things we want to do well, that we really do engage in multiculturalism and we really do believe in a, in a fair go for everybody, particularly when the pathway to that referendum would be so simple. It's just a largesse of spirit, really. I only read last week that there's still 17,000 existing stolen generation Indigenous Australians who are still living with that pain. And until it's fundamentally addressed at an infrastructure, a foundation level, we're really not going to get the healing we need. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Listen, we don't want to specify necessarily Michael Kirby or Paul Keating, but during that decade or so of experience, what did you learn about leadership? I'm always learning about leadership and, and looking for the great leaders and trying to emulate and, and to practice what great leaders do. And I think leadership, it's an act of authentic interest in people in the future. It's not an end in itself. People, I don't think anyone should aspire to be a leader. It's a set of qualities that can inspire others but based in an authentic belief of the things that matter, being accountable, being open and honest, 
being able to translate what people really want in language and in deeds that people can see and, and say that's what leadership looks like. It's, and, and I think setting a course that's ambitious but achievable, taking risks, being creative, um, humility. So if you're going to take some risks and you make a mistake, being prepared to say, I made a mistake and I've learnt from it and I'm, I, will, I will adjust. But it's just, I think it's a sense, it's a, it's a deeply human thing we look for in our leaders. We want to trust our leaders. And interestingly, the Edelman Trust Survey globally that was done, it's been done for over three decades, did a survey through COVID and then post-COVID. And they've discovered that we built a whole lot of trust in governments through COVID because, and they'd been dropping in trust as leaders for a long time. But the decisions that were made on our behalf on health were seen as very good. But the greatest rise in trust for the Australian community has been in my employer and the expectations I have of the leaders of the people, the leaders of the organisations I work for. And I think we've become very much part of, um, we now think about the people who we work for, chief executives, the boards, as say, if, if they say that this is important, I believe them because I, I have a contract with them that is my, my work. And the Edelman Trust Survey has just seen this rapid rise in people generally believing the people they work for, and particularly if you're in a larger organisation, which I guess says those leaders have got to exercise authentic leadership on behalf of the people that they have in their organisations on things that do matter. And I think we're, we're seeing that with the issues of respect at work. You know, those leaders saying poor treatment of anyone, bullying, harassment, that has no place in our workplace. That's, a lead, that's an act of leadership. Engaging with the Uluru Statement, that's an act of leadership to help people go, well, my organisation believes in this and they think that's good for the future. Now I'm engaged. So there's these things beyond running the company well, explaining what you stand for in the community and your customers and standing by the decisions you make on behalf of others. There is a view that there's a lot of distrust and unhappiness with the standard of leadership federally. I'm not asking about your politics, but given your experience at a political level and given what's gone on in the federal parliament with the way women are treated, what advice would you give to a government now in terms of recalibrating the structural workplace in Canberra so that it's a fairer place for women? So it's a risky thing to give advice to, <laughs> to governments, but I guess I'd step back from it and go back to basic principles. Kate Jenkins' report has told us that right across the country, workplaces have been an unsafe and dangerous place, particularly for women, but not just women. Anyone who hasn't fitted the norm has experienced bullying, and the numbers have been staggering in her report. The work she will uncover in the parliament, so it's not so much the government, it's the parliament and the parliamentary processes, the officers of our elected officials around the country, it will expose a critical problem in that those environments, and I've worked in those environments for many, many years, have thought of themselves as not really workplaces, but places you go that where we give up on all, all of those good HR policies and principles because it's the work of government or the work of politics that matters. A rarefied environment. And disconnected from the, the way people work everywhere else. And so there hasn't been a norm about good HR and support. There hasn't been a place where someone who experienced bullying, harassment or worse could go and make a complaint without them knowing they would lose their job. And so the deals were struck. You know, if you want to be part of this kind of political environment on any, in any real part of the political system, you raise your complaints at some risk for your career. So people kind of knew the deal. And Kate's next set of work will expose that. And I think you've already heard from the Prime Minister, certainly the Leader of the Opposition and others, to say we've got to be a best practice workplace. So we have to have all those systems. So my advice is stop using the language of thinking this is political correctness or somehow, um, as I said, this identity politics. This is actually about just being fair and just to people wherever they work. 
and the parliament and politics should be no different to any other organisation that people work in. People like Brittany Higgins are being hailed as incredibly courageous. If you met Brittany Higgins in the street and no one else was watching, what would you say to her? Oh, I think I'd say the same thing I'd say if everyone was watching, which is, are you okay? How are you? Because the pressure on Brittany Higgins through this period has been immense and she became the figurehead for so much of the last six months' activities on and revealing what's been going on. So she, she took that on. She's young, relatively vulnerable given what she had lived through, but determined. So I'd say, are you okay? Do you need any support? What do we need to do for all the young women like you? And you know, I have a 21-year-old daughter. I hear her stories all the time about very bad behaviour that still goes on in many of the places that she finds herself, that she has to guard herself against and prepare herself for. And then I would thank her. I'd say thank you for being so brave, for standing there in front of such ferocity in the political system And I don't mean that as the government, I just mean to step up as she did and to share her experience and to expose herself and to have it broadcast all over the country, dissected and and, and looked at by everybody, to be um, the subject of trolling, to know that, you know, social media would be lit up with a kind of backlash. So I'd say thank you. And then I'd say it's our job together as a community to ensure this doesn't happen to you ever again and doesn't happen to anyone ever again. So we have to hold people to account. We've got to have a higher level of commitment to what great workplaces need to be. We've got to take women seriously when they talk about these unsafe environments. Australia has a terrible record on the way we think about sexual assault, and particularly with current or former intimate partners. It's a disgrace. And we we will see one woman murdered this year again, every week, as we have in every previous year in the last decade, by a current or former intimate partner in an act of domestic or family violence. The statistics are horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And we all keep saying we're going to do something about it. Do you have a view about why Australia really struggles in this space? Well, I think many nations struggle in this space. We've been very good at actually bringing this to account and reporting on it. And there's been extraordinary work done by leaders across the women's communities who've been at the front of this in domestic violence shelters and supporting women generally. We've been we've had extraordinary women who've been leading the charge on making sure we don't ignore the data. I think there's some cultural norms that sit in this that we have to again our leaders have to be really clear that that are unacceptable. Can you break that down for there's me? There's a blokiness that still I think still pervades a lot of what is seen as the normal kind of guy in this country and. Anyone who's a man who's sensitive or sides with women might be seen as somehow soft. And we've got to get well beyond those tropes and stand up for and have men as allies of women and do that confidently. It's funny you use the word allies because uh, an old colleague of mine, Brad McEwen, who works in the mental health space, he asked me to be part of something recently because he's started a group called Women's Allies. And why I applauded him was that I feel like it's a a friend and a supporter and it it seems to remove a stigma that's attached to having to support one as opposed to another or against another group. It's just actually saying, I'm a friend and I want to be part of your tribe and I support you in your endeavours. And we, we know that when men stand up as allies of women on anything, other men will listen rather than always being in the voices of women. We also know that there are so many good men and so many good young men who I'd hate to think because we've had to shine a light on this that we forget that young men want some honour and respect for the, the roles they play and that they have want to have respectful relationships as they grow older and it's not all about all bad men. 
but our numbers tell us that we've got a problem. The um, ANROS, the National Research Organisation on Women's Safety, runs a, a survey of the, it's called the NCAS, the National Communities Attitude Surveys on treatment of women. And over a long period of time, we've not moved the dial on a large minority of men, particularly young men, who have a view that sometimes women use allegations of harassment and assault to get a tactical advantage either in a relationship or for a work advantage. So it's a disturbing number who think actually raising it is, is being used by women as a tactical matter and that somehow women make those things up. And yet we know that the, the tiny reporting that's done by women who are the victims of sexual assault is because the women believe they won't be believed. If it gets to court, it won't get to a judgment, and they put themselves through that in the way that Brittany has in the, in the way she's made herself public. So we've got a series of things around education and having be the step up to say disrespect for women is just not okay. And let's honour the men who do respect women. Let's make that a cultural norm, respecting women, just like we want to respect right across our community. And sometimes that friendship is about men calling out other men in the moment when a really crass thing is said, when a poster is up on a wall that's totally disrespectful to women and asking the bloke to pull it down and explaining why it is disrespectful to women. All these things we need to do and men need to do, um, women want men to do. And I, I love reading David Laser's book, Women, Men, The Whole Damn Thing, where he unpacks all of this and says, we have got to come back to some understanding of how as men and women working together, we understand each other. We're different. And he wrote the book post Me Too to say, what did we learn in the Me Too movement? What do we take from that that honours women? And how do we build competency in men to be vulnerable, not to be frightened of, of women or somehow think of us as the enemy? And for women to engage with men in that conversation so that we can build a united sense of how we can be better. And that respect goes two ways. But we've got to be really conscious of the fact that our numbers tell us that right now so many women are at risk, mainly in their homes and through those domestic environments. Women feel, don't, don't feel anything other than nervousness on the streets late at night. And in the workplace, we know from Kate's work that we have been the victims of um, harassment and assault in almost every workplace across the country in some form. So there's a lot of good work to be done. I think the exposing of it means that there's a kind of a national project that we should be doing and it will help us have better relationships with anyone that's not like ourselves. I think it's about inclusion and respect and making sure we all feel like we belong. I want to switch the gear a little here. Given your work in boards and your view of the economy across so many different sectors, for a lot of people listening, they will be of a certain age group or they may have children coming through. And we all keep hearing millennials are a different breed. For example, millennials may have five careers in a lifetime, which was unheard of when we were growing up. What are you seeing? And how do you, how do you navigate that space as a parent or as an 18-year-old? So as a parent of a 21-year-old, um, I see that up close and, and with her cousins and you know, young men and women. I see that actually we should, we should never make a judgment or try to classify millennials as a cohort. And we, we should just really invest in understanding what matters to young people. All right. I'm, I'm sorry. I put them down as a cohort. No, no. no but we, we typically all do. And we do the same with boomers and Gen Xs and the whole thing. But understanding that actually a lot of things we've always wanted are the same things that young people want. I'm really lucky that I chair the Foundation for Young Australians. And that is an organisation that really exists to fight for justice for young people and make sure that the things that young people really care about do make it to the fore. And the young people involved in FYA would say a lot of those things about multiple careers is right, but there are some fundamental things they care about right now. And one of them is intergenerational economic justice. So what is it we're handing over? This is the biggest wealth transfer we've ever seen at this point from the boomers. 
as property and, and wealth is transferred to their children. What will we do with that transfer of wealth that will benefit young people and not create a world where any young person that wasn't the beneficiary of that is suddenly very poor and unequal? They are very conscious that we are handing over a degraded planet. So climate change matters to young people. It matters to, to me and people of my generation too, but it's a very real visceral issue for young people. It's not just Greta Thunberg saying that. That's, you can talk to any young person who says, I'm so upset. We are bequeathing a world that, that just can't deliver in the same way it did for us, whether that's in the natural environment or in our energy systems. And our failure to act quickly means that this young group of people will be living through the biggest economic and financial transition as the world moves so rapidly to decarbonise that there will be losers. And um, if we'd been decarbonising over time carefully in a just way, building transition paths, younger people, I think, would have a greater sense that their future was really bright. Some parts of young people would say it is bright because they're well and truly in that sector of the renewables and, and a more sustainable way of living. But for many, our failure to act when we knew in the early stages, and I saw this at Insurance Australia Group in 2001-2, when the insurance sector called for a cost on carbon to start, start the transition to a low carbon economy and do it in a way that communities wouldn't be hurt. We're now racing towards decarbonising arguably by 2030, not just 2050. And that's going to have big impacts on our economies. And young people, I think, feel that already, that something's going on that means they're going to have to work harder or their prospects and the way the economy works will be different. And certainly so much of the natural world, whether it's the Great Barrier Reef, our great world heritage sites, will be affected. And many of those young people live through the bushfires, the storms, the floods, and they've watched what happens and the rapidity of these events. They know this is what climate change feels like. I know, Sam, you don't have the answers to everything, but you're pretty plugged in across a range of sectors and you do that deliberately so that you gain learnings from different demographics. But I, I despair at the level of mental health issues and depression amongst young Australians. And it, it, it's not an emerging problem, it's a real problem and it's significant. Do you think some of those issues are contributing to their lack of the ability to dream and hope? It's hard to... Yeah, I'm offering a view now. It's not an educated yes. response. I understand. But, um, but I, I can't imagine how it wouldn't be and how a sense of unfairness and things that we took for granted as we were growing up, just that they know are not available to them, that sense of frustration at why has a generation not dealt with these things that have been so clear? Why do we spend so much time in the political fight rather than creating solutions that, that are intergenerational and do look after future, future prosperity of young people? I think it's a much more complicated world that young people grow up in. You know, I, when I grew up, I didn't know, I, we travelled as a family, but I didn't, I wasn't connected to the rest of the world from a very young age. I was connected to my local communities. But I watched my daughter and all of her cohort. The world is their oyster at 12. Well, they also have a device that means that, that the world they're connecting to is global. So they're watching everything happening in the world in real time if they want to, or if they choose to. So they're part, they understand that what's happening around the world is big. You know, they, they don't have as much time, I think, in that local environment protected for a long period to, to be nourished and enjoy that local environment. Now, again, I'm, I'm speaking off the top of my head, not from good reason, but I, I know that when the great mental health leaders of our country talk about the crisis we're in now and you see governments responding with big packages, big commitments and asking businesses and employers to step up and play the role to understand that this is a crisis and we've got to be really attentive to, to the mental wealth of the country. Are you seeing that at a board level? Absolutely. Yeah. 
So boards now talk about the mental health of an organisation as much as we talk about the general occupational health and safety. So it's part of the Pulse survey? It's absolutely part of Pulse. I actually had a... um, we had some lawyers come into one of my boards recently to do our training because you do regular updates on boards and, you know, do you really understand your, your duties? And he pointed out that in the same way that a board will look and examine a near miss of a bad thing that happens in an organisation that could have led to someone being hurt, you know, either catastrophically, you'll often look at a near miss as an example of what did we do wrong that led to that almost killing someone or hurting someone. It's often about a physical environment. And you'll unpack that and say, so we can't ever do that again. You make sure your systems are fixed. He said, you have to think about the near misses in people's psychological safety. So what happens when someone is bullied and no one says a bystander doesn't step up? Does the board, is the board sitting over a culture where it's okay to walk past someone who's actually behaving in a way that affects someone's mental health? Not anymore. That's now a duty to actually provide a safe environment for people to work that's psychologically safe as well as physically safe. So it's a, it takes up a lot of our time, as it should, because people spend so much time in our workplaces and we know that mental health is a growing issue for so many. I know it's not an easy answer, but how has COVID affected you in the last 12 to 18 months at a board level? What are boards currently grappling with? I mean, I hear it's all about how do we find the right balance to get people working from home and yet still stay connected to either their work cohort or to maintain career paths. What are you finding? Well, uh, the boards I'm on, we probably met twice as often as we would have during a normal period, not just because the issues were so extreme. We were changing things on such a rapid basis based on COVID. So we were all into this for the first time. But the good thing about boards is you can easily have a board work well in a virtual environment. So we were, whether it was WebEx or Microsoft Teams or Zoom, we could get together a lot very quickly because we weren't travelling. So I think about twice as many meetings dealing with big issues affecting companies. Coming out of COVID, there's no doubt that almost every organisation is trying to work out what is the pathway to the, the flexible environment that people have had a taste of through COVID, through necessity, but now want a part of as part of the normal way of operating into the future. And so having to unpack that and do it very purposefully, company by company or organisation by organisation, we can't just tell everyone you have to come back to work. And I don't think it would be smart to say you can all just work from home because that doesn't unpack what's happened and what does a flexible economy feel like and what's right for the sectors. So, you know, some jobs just can't be done from home. Construction work, healthcare, education, you know, to be done well, they're face-to-face, they're on a site. But you can do those jobs flexibly if you don't require someone to have to come in every day or start at the same time or not take leave for parental needs or elder care. So it can, it's purposeful, it's got to be equitable, but I think every good company is taking the time to think through how do we take advantage of what we learnt through COVID and what's it teaching us about what the best workplaces can really look like and how do we honour what people really want. And so many people want to spend more time with their families. They don't want to be on a commute. For If someone's chosen to live in a nice environment but can't afford to do it in a city and has a two-hour commute each way, that through COVID suddenly four hours of their day is spent actually in their community and at home or in a local environment, they want to keep some of that. So maybe that's someone who'll come into work three days a week, not five. But we've got to move beyond anecdotes and letting some people do that to being very purposeful about this. And boards and their executive teams are thinking about this a lot and trying to get the balance and then trying to work out what do do our cities look like, what does our transport systems look like, and what do we learn from this that actually helps us build a better future. I live in the city and, uh, you know, a lot of people have been working from home clearly and the city for a long time had been deserted. I wonder if we're going to see, and it's just, again, your viewpoint, a transformation of what our cities will look like. They'll need to become more urbanised. 
and less corporate. I suspect we'll start to see our buildings becoming more residential and less, you know, office space dedicated. We're going to have to see that blend to bring life back into our cities and maintain the flexibility that business and people want. I agree. Cities remain um, one of the great mechanisms by which we will live. And thinking about what does a sustainable city look like? How do you have that environment where you've got integrated retail and residential and office that's low carbon, that's very community focused, where there's great, at, at street level, a wonderful sense of community and access to good food and to, to great assets like in a city like Sydney. I mean, imagine you utilise some of the things like the museum, like the art galleries, like Hyde Park, as part of how you live, because great cities do that. But I want more supermarkets. You want more supermarkets? Yeah. That's interesting. Well, a couple more. In the city? Yeah. Oh, I think you'll see. So um, there's a wonderful development at South Everly, that's where the Commonwealth Bank moved in and yes. got a lot of its employees there. And Mervac worked with the Commonwealth Bank and that whole area around carriage works and the old locomotive workshops and the people of Everly and Redfern to build an integrated space where there is a, there's a supermarket. It's not an obvious one, but it's built into the design of that mini part of the city. And so it's close to two train stations. It's close to a lot of really good residential stuff going on in that part of Sydney. But I feel as a consequence of COVID, we've really cherished what a village really means, what it looks like, what it feels like, and it's got to be our village. I think that's right for people who've got the ability to access that village. Yes. For a lot of people who live in the outer suburbs who have got to keep getting their kids to school, who've got to afford their mortgage, we've got to pay as much attention as we can to what's a, what's a great community wherever we find it. And it will have different aspects depending on the location. So for those that don't live in the city of Sydney, around the harbour, you know, what does Western Sydney feel like? What does the arrival of the new international airport mean for how you build community around? I should stress that it wasn't littered with privilege when I said it, and I don't live near the harbour or on the harbour, but for me, the concept of my village has become far more important to me. I think that's right. I think we all did things locally through COVID and we got, we wanted to support local business. We wanted to support, um, we weren't going very far, so we were looking for things locally and maybe reinvesting in our local neighbourhood. And I think there's some really good lessons from that that we, we've got to take into whatever world we're, we're creating and listen to what communities most want out of that. But you're right, we became very fond of our local villages and there's something very important in that, I think. Are you bored curious? Well, join us next time when Sam demystifies the boardroom for us. The Boardroom Explained, right here on Short Black. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.